from pod617.com, the Boston Podcast Network, it's The Meter is Running with John Meter Perel and Shira Springer. Today, Meter and Shira are joined by Dallas Mavericks head coach Rick Carlisle. Enjoy the conversation. The Meter is Running. Dallas Mavericks coach Rick Carlisle is one of the most respected basketball minds in the NBA. Straight to the point. Straightforward. Tough. Very good basketball coach. Competitive. Great guy. Caring. Loyal. He's also an underrated comedian who does a mean Greg Popovich impression. Dwight Howard obviously has it going inside. Will you consider double teaming him in the fourth? Yes. Does it make it, the fact that they shoot so well from the three, does that make it tough to make that decision to go ahead and do that? Yes. It's my Popovich impersonation. And he's a licensed pilot. And Sheer Springer. He's a guy that gave (laughs) yours truly hope. Because when I was a 10-year-old boy watching the CBS Sunday Game of the Week and watching the Celtics locally, of course, I saw a guy named Rick Carlisle, and I said, Wait a minute, if that guy can play with Larry Bird, so can I someday. <laughs> so, he so looked what, like what, me. What happened to your NBA career, John? The only thing he had on me was he might have been a little bit faster. That tells you how <laughs> slow I was. I could shoot the rock. My okay. NBA career, well, you know, I, I ended up being an NBA like PA announcer. That was kind of my NBA career. I couldn't shoot, I couldn't, I couldn't rebound, I couldn't play defense, I could talk. So I decided to go that route. Okay. But Rick is a, pers- a study in perseverance. And a guy who was a third-round pick, made the NBA, shocked the world, and is now one of the best coaches in the league. And thanks to your outstanding Rolodex. Thank you. Because you have a Rolodex that I think probably matches uh, some royals now as you, as you prepare <laughs> for the royal wedding. Yes. This weekend. Yes, uh, I'll be flying over to London. A lengthy list. Are you going? No. Are you making the trip? No, I don't have any fascinator. I don't have a dress. Nothing. No, oh, no, and no, and no invitation, by the way. I would expect you to hook up with one of Meghan Markle's uh, associates. And say, hey, don't you know who I think I am? <laughs> yeah, that, that'll, that'll just, I'll just crash that wedding. What do you think? Are you going to be one wedding? of those? T- I saw the, the television schedule for this. Will I be one of those people who wakes up at 4 a.m. Yeah. to watch? Yes. At 4.30? I think I might be up at 4 a.m. Well, to watch. Have you heard of a DVR? Yeah, but I, I want to see it live. It's sort of like a sports <laughs> event. You know, it's, it's, it's my guilty pleasure sports event. I get it. But giving up a Saturday morning of sleep? It's only like you know an hour an and a half earlier than I, no, it's only an hour and a half oh. earlier than I later than I or earlier than I. Do you really I think it's gonna it's gonna match the hype? Of course, it's a royal wedding. It's gonna be that. Gonna good. have my tea and crumpets. What and my... sets a royal wedding apart from I don't know a wedding you can see down in uh, Waltham at uh, you know what, what's the big yeah what's the big uh, what's the big wedding place now? Uh, Lombardos and Randall Chateau de Ville. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I would I would have Local to say would, the, the pageantry, the royals, that you know, the fact that you're you're seeing you know a prince get married and a commoner become a princess, or I guess it's a duchess. I think she's going to be the Duchess of Sussex. Is that is that what we're hearing? Now? I guess so. I get the Sussex and the Essex and the and the, the all the exes. Yeah, all the exes confused. Okay. <laughs> yeah, no, that's no relation to Essex Mass, right? No, as, as I understand it, no. No, it is not. I, I'm, see, that's unfortunately, as we move into Rick Carlisle here, we blew it. We did not ask him a royal wedding question. We should have. We I'm, really sure, should I'm sure have. he's well-versed in, in, in royal etiquette. Because this is a guy who, as you know, is uh, pretty smart. Yes, I mean... He's very smart. Pilot, piano player. Yes. Basketball coach. What doesn't he do? I'm not sure. Does he cook? I have no idea. We should have asked. He speaks eight languages. 
Mm, I don't know. It's <laughs> At easy. least one fluently. <laughs> yes, I was say, we know he speaks one fluently. <laughs> well, you know Maybe he's, he might speak a little bit of German, having been around Dirk Nowitzki. Dirk, for, yeah, you know. well, that's, that's a good point, too. We didn't go deep into Dirk. Diaz, what, what should we have asked him? You should have asked him if he's aware of how much he resembles Jim Carrey, because <laughs> from certain angles, it's scary. You know what? It's funny. Uh, you mentioned that, and um, I can tell you he is aware of it because I, I, at a Halloween party, and this went viral um, on social media after this Halloween party, he went as Jim Carrey. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So not only does he, so he recognize Jim Carrey. Yeah, but, so I was going to say, not yeah. only does he recognize that he resembles Jim Carrey, but he has a pretty good sense of humor the about the and, fact that he does. Was it the Dumb and Dumber orange? Uh, no, no. Crushed velvet tux, perhaps? No. No, right, it, was, it was sort of the, I think. The you know, cable what, guy, Jim Carrey? Well, that would be good. Whatever one matches the haircut that, that Rick has now at the moment, which it's is. kind of a militaristic haircut. Yeah, yeah. So if there's a, 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 a role that Jim Carrey had with a militaristic haircut, yes. then that, that would be the version of Jim Carrey he went as. Me, myself, and Irene, I believe. Yeah, that must be call. it. Yeah. There you go. There's a video on the internet, some YouTuber with a lot of time on his or her hands has posted clips of Jim Carrey's movies with Rick Carlisle's face superimposed upon the body. So and where yeah. were you? Where yeah. were you? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not so sure Missed Coach would have actually wanted to talk about that. Yeah, I think he was he was more serious though. We covered a lot covered a lot of good in topics. Yeah. We could have we could have uh, eased him into Jim Carrey lookalike questions, but that's okay. We did our job. We did. And we did. I think to, I think we got a lot of good to information. Thanks Sears Rolodex, which Megan Markle will borrow soon. <laughs> we spoke with Rick Carlo. The that's coach. our next guest, right? Oh, Megan Markle. Yes, I'm think working on Prince Harry. She's putting off the honeymoon so she can come on I'm the podcast. Working on the Queen. Okay. And then the real prince, and then the other prince, and then the other prince. Okay. There's like three different princes, right? Mm-hmm. Or four? I, well, there's <laughs> Charles. Charles, the dad. That's the dad. Charles is the dad. I, I see no, that I need... No, Queen Elizabeth's Oh, Prince husband. Philip. Prince Edward. Prince Philip. Oh. And uh, Prince Fielder, of course. Prince Fielder, of course. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, Prince Edward. He, he's, he's a brother. He's a brother. Of Prince Charles. He's a brother from, from another mother, Yes. Yes. Oh, for Charles. Yes. We'll, we'll, we'll work on the royal... I will draw you a work royal out, family work on a trilogy tree. I will draw me, you right? a royal family tree. I feel tree. like I need to go watch The Crown now <laughs> on Netflix, but I oh am gosh, watching. Oh my gosh, you haven't? You should. I've watched a little bit. I am watching Safe, and I am hooked. Okay. Thank you, Harlan Coben. If you missed The Meteor is Running with Harlan Coben, it's available now on iTunes as well. I almost said iFlix. <laughs> yes, write that one down. We can, we we got can it. more focus. We trademark that. Yes, we can trademark that, but it is a phenomenal series. And you will be hooked okay. from the jump. Okay. All right. See, like I have to, I I have to get it? through the Celtics playoffs before I can get hooked on another series. So I and see binge. you as a multitasker. I am a multitasker, but uh, too, you only have like five plates in the air, I feel. Yeah, that's, that's a bit much to juggle, especially when you're at the Garden until 1 a.m. But she's industrious. That's why she's here. Shira Springer on the meter is running. Sports stories and stuff. Rick Carlisle from the Dallas Mavericks is next. Oh, no. Uh, license and registration, please, sir. What's the problem, officer? Uh, well, son, lots of problems. You were, you were doing 115 miles an hour in a 35 zone. You have a blown taillight and a blown headlight. Uh, about a mile back there on the road, you ran over a whole family of deer uh, and some very cute bunnies. You appear to have several kinds of illegal explosive drugs and firearms in the back seat. not to mention there's a 300-pound bearded man who's bound and gagged back there for some reason. What do you have to say for yourself, son? Uh, if you log on to pod617.com, you can listen to some great podcasts and produce one of your own. Pod617.com, huh? 
Okay. Have a nice day, sir. At pod617.com, you'll find on-demand podcasts on politics, sports, music, and amazing storytelling. And pod617.com will produce a broadcast-quality show for you to promote your business or professional service. Listen to the voices of your city and join the community. Pod617.com, the Boston Podcast Network. Oh, you know what? I changed my mind. You're under arrest. Thank you for joining us, Rick. Um, we're going to start with uh, playoffs. So first of all, did you get a chance to watch uh, yesterday's game, game one of the Eastern Conference Finals between the Cavaliers and the Celtics? And if so, what did you think? Well, I did see it. Uh, I'm watching all the playoff games. Um, I, I think Boston is in a great position uh, in this series. Um they have uh, an, an unbelievable amount of wing depth and guys that they can throw at LeBron James to guard him to give different looks. And they have a guy on their team that I think is the most underrated superstar in the entire NBA, and that's Al Horford. Um, anytime they need a big basket or a big play, um, they direct the ball to him, and he either scores hits a three, makes a pass for a layup, you know, does something. And he's one of the most unassuming superstars that I've ever seen in this league. But the guy is a uh, total winner. And to me, he's a big difference maker in this series. That's interesting you say that, Rick, because he gets some criticism in Boston for not being more assertive, for not being more of a scorer, for not being more of a stats filler. And I'm sure a coach looks at that and says, I don't care about stats. I just want him to win. What do you think he needs to do to even become more assertive as an offensive player in this series? Well, I don't, I don't necessarily think he needs to do anything except keep winning. Um, you know, in Boston, greatness is measured by banners. It's not measured in stats. Um, if you look at the stats of a lot of guys that are hanging in the rafters, um, you'd be you'd be probably very shocked to see that a lot of their stats pale in comparison to Al Horford. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> I, I just this is just my personal belief is that he is a very unusual um, superstar caliber player. He 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 fits perfectly into what they're trying to do, what they're trying to stand for. Um, you know, and he's just he, he's unique in that. He doesn't need the loud stats to be fulfilled. And that's where, uh, you know, I I believe guys like him are the real key to success in this league. Coach, in terms of working for the Mavericks now, you've had an an unbelievable career. You started as a Celtic in 1984. Uh, You probably defy the odds as a third-round pick, but now you find yourself as the coach of the Mavericks after a decorated coaching career, what's the day-to-day like for you, and what's it like working for Mark Cuban? Well, you just asked about four questions. Which one do you want to answer first? <laughs> we'll go to the uh, Cuban one first. Yeah. Well, you know, Mark's great. He's, um, he's a big personality. He's become an international TV star. Um, when I first came to Dallas, I knew that he was going to be close to the players and that uh, he was going to have uh, uncommonly close relationships with the players. 
Um, and one of the re- one of the ways that I felt uh, I could build trust with him and the guys on the team was to encourage him to um, have those relationships and to be around, um, to be in the locker room as often as possible. You know, at home games, on the road, particularly particularly on the road at home. There's a, there's a different kind of routine that goes on for games, and he has other things going on. But on, 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 on road games, you know, he is regularly in the locker room um, before the game, in the training room, hanging out, sending emails, texts, you know, uh, talking to players. Um, he's in there for the pregame meeting. He comes back in at halftime. Uh, and I just want him to understand that, that his presence around the team um, you know, is is really important, and, and I think it shows how much he cares about winning and, and how and about the guys on the team. And so, I've taken that approach from really from day one. Um, you know, some coaches may not be crazy about having their owner that close to the action, but I I feel it's it's a very important part of who we are as an organization, as a team, and and. Uh, and kind of how we're viewed, and uh, the more he's around, the better. And it's been harder in recent years because his schedule's gotten busier, you know, with with Shark Tank, and he's in demand all over the world for speaking engagements. And um, he's got three kids now that are getting up into their teens and low teens and stuff. And so there's a lot going on, and it's just it's harder to get him around the team every day. Now, Rick, you've got a lot going on. In addition to being the head coach of the Dallas Mavericks, you are also the head of the NBA Coaches Association. And there have been some interesting coaching issues that have cropped up around the league um, in recent weeks. First of all, I'm curious, uh, I wanted to talk to you about Becky Hammond. She is set to interview for the Bucks' head coaching job. Uh, What do you think of that, first of all, and, and in the spirit of multi-part questions here, um, why is it also, do you think, that the NBA seems to be pro- particularly progressive when it comes to including women in its coaching ranks? Let's not forget she's not the only female assistant working now in the NBA. Well, I have great respect for Becky. Um, she had a great career as a player. Um, she got into this uh, the right way by, I believe, volunteering her time down in uh, San Antonio. She just wanted to be in on meetings and stuff like that. You know, Pop loved her. Um, they offered her a job. You know, within two years, she coached the Vegas Summer League team to the championship, you know, to, to a championship win in the, in the Las Vegas Summer League, which was, which has become a, you know, a, it's become a happening in the summer. I mean, it, it is a huge, huge deal. So she got a lot of visibility with that. Um, I know that she has a great amount of respect from the San Antonio players. And um, and so, and, and I believe she also interviewed for a general manager, manager position last year. It may have even been the Bucks position. I think it was the Bucks so, position, yeah. Yeah, and so I'm not surprised that they're, uh, that they want to talk to her again. Uh, I think it's great. You know, I've, I've got a daughter that just turned 14, and you know, and I want her to know that this world is a, a world of equality, and that you know, whatever your dreams are, regardless.
gender, you are going to have a chance to fulfill them if you do the work and are qualified. And, and Becky is doing the work, um, and she's become very qualified. And uh, sure, as you mentioned, there's a couple other girls. There's Natalie, who works for the Clippers, who's behind the bench out there. Um, Jenny Busek, right? And, she's Jenny, and Jenny Busek, who was, was with uh, Sacramento this year. And, and uh, you know, Jenny is somebody that I know well. She came and spent uh, a month with us uh, four years ago for training camp just because she wanted um, to see the, you know, kind of the genesis um, and the evolution of an NBA training camp from day one all the way through the end. Um, and, you know, she's somebody that, that I've gotten to know because she's uh, a graduate of the University of Virginia where I'm from. She was several years later than me, which is lucky for her. But, uh, you know, she's another one like Becky that's, um, you know, that's qualified. You know, Jenny's been a two-time head coach in the WNBA and had a lot of success. And uh, this past year, she fulfilled a dream as a, as a player development coach for Sacramento, and she wants to keep moving up the ranks. And so, you know, I, as president of the Coaches Association, I've I've let our guys know that uh, you know we are uh, we are an equal opportunity association, and that we should encourage anyone who's a great coach um, to be a part of the NBA coaching uh, fraternity, whether it's uh, female, whether it's European, whether it's college, you name it. You know, guys like. Brad Stevens, Billy Donovan, you know, we've welcomed those guys with open arms and uh, under the assumption that they were going to raise the level of, of how we did things because there, there, there has to be things in college um, that are being done that would be good things for the NBA. And, and of course, we found that to be true. So uh, I'm happy for Becky. I texted with her a couple days ago before she uh, went in. I stayed in touch with her and uh, told her a lot of people are pulling for her and wish her the best. Now, you mentioned Brad Stevens, and, and I want to go to some recent controversy, so to speak, with regard to the NBA Coaches Association Coach of the Year Award. That award was given to Dwayne Casey, I guess now you'd say formerly of the Toronto Raptors, um, recently fired after a successful, I believe, seven-year run there. Um, but here in Boston, the talk was about how Brad Stevens didn't get any votes. So I'm just curious if you could, one, explain sort of the thinking and what the factors that go into who gets the Coach of the Year Award from the NBA Coaches Association, and then maybe explain just how difficult it is to evaluate NBA coaches, because they all seem to deal with very different team dynamics and very different situations. Um, so it must be hard to, to compare and put them up for an award like that. Well, you know, we established the award last year, um, in, the, in honor of and now in memory of the great Michael Goldberg, who was, uh, was our executive director for the Coach Association for close to 40 years. And we wanted something that would be uh, an annual uh, nod of respect and appreciation to him, but also something that was symbolic of you know an award voted upon by your peers. Now, there used to be the sporting news used to have an NBA coaches vote award back in the early 2000s. And, and then the sporting news, you know, I, it, it, it changed somehow and, and it just kind of may have been absorbed by some, by another outlet or something like this. And that award kind of went away. And so 
um, with the, I guess, cooperation, help, whatever, of the league, we were able to establish this award. Adam Silver was 100% in favor of it. Um, it should be noted it's a single-vote award. So, you know, unlike the um, NBA Coach of the Year award voted upon by the media, I believe you give three votes. You give uh, first, second, and third yep. place Vote. So, you know, there's there's more votes that are tabulated. You know, ours is only a single vote situation. Um, but still, Brad Stevens so, was left off. Which is which is incredible. That? But still, I mean, still, Brad, it's it's sort of incredible, at least from here, that, that Brad Stevens didn't get a single vote. <laughs> yes, it is. Well, you know what? If you look at some of the things that happened uh, in the set, and you know, post All Star break and toward the end of the year. I think it's, it's a little easier to understand why this could happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, for instance, uh, Portland went on a 10 or 15 game winning streak after the All-Star break. Uh, Philadelphia won 16 games to end the season. Um, you know, Utah went like 24 and 4 to end the season and to get the, the you know, the fifth seed. Um, now, during, during that period, um, you know, Boston was having some struggles down the stretch of the season. Now, if, if we had announced the award just as the season was came to a conclusion before the playoffs started, um, you know, there wouldn't have been yeah. this kind of thing. You know, now, now look, I, look I, Brad Stevens is a has become a, a great friend of mine. And I'll tell you this: uh, when he came into the league, you know, he was a great coach. He's one of the best coaches in the world before he ever got to the NBA. And after his first season, um, I uh, got together with him in Chicago at the pre-draft camp, and I, and I asked him if he'd be interested in getting together in the summer and talking basketball because I felt like there would be a lot of things I could learn from him <clears throat> having come from college. And we did. We got together that summer and, and spent a lot of time together. Now, uh, he came to South Carolina where I live in the summer, that year and the following year, I flew my airplane up to Goshen, Indiana, <laughs> and spent and spent a day a day and a half with him up on Lake Syracuse, where he spends time in the summer. Now, you know, as and I'll get back to this whole thing about the award. You know, as the season ended, um, you know, there's all this stuff going on, and and, and look, the Celtics. A lot of people picked Milwaukee to beat them. They, they kind of were an underdog in that series because they didn't have Irving, they didn't have Hayward. Um, and then Boston won that in seven. Um, and then in the next series, you know, they were, um, they, were, they were an underdog in every single game until game five against yep. Philadelphia. And they won, you know, they won four out of five games. So... You know, when you're pulling that kind of stuff off and you're the head coach, I mean, you're getting a lot of attention and you deserve it. And But look, the, the votes had already been tabulated well before this stuff had happened. And so this became a controversy. And then, you know, Brad was asked about it before, I think, game one of uh, the, the series with, uh, um, what you call it, whoever they're playing right now, Cleveland. Cleveland. And, yeah, and he... Or actually, I think it was before Game Five of the of the Philly series, and his comments, you know, about the whole thing, 
really, I thought, put everything into perspective. And he, he just did a great job handling it. Um, you know, we don't, we don't put out there the number of votes. Uh, but I'll tell you this, just for the sake of this conversation, Dwayne Casey was a landslide winner um, of our award. And I expect that there's a good chance he'll win the NBA award as well. And I just I, lo- I love the way Brad handled the whole thing because he's a guy that really keeps things in perspective. And, you know, I think next year, uh, because of this, and, you know, you get into the playoffs and then, you, you, you know, you try to figure out the right time to present the award. It's difficult. I think what we're going to do next year is try to, is try to announce the award uh, maybe, you know, maybe before the first round even starts. Um, and that way we can, you know, it, it, it'll be clearly about what happened in the regular season. Um, because, you know, the other thing is there, there's, no, there's no Coach of the Year award that takes into account for the playoffs, and I think if you did that, that would be a really tricky thing to do. And plus, you know, the regular season is, you know, it's 100 games by the time you play exhibitions and everything like that. So really, it, it, it is the part of the season that has the most meaning. Rick Carlisle is our guest on The Meter is Running. Rick, looking at the situation with Brad Stevens, I think there was a prevailing theme up here that a lot of coaches outside of yourself feel that Brad Stevens gets too much credit, that he uh, is basically the guy that has led the Celtics to the promised land and he hasn't even reached it yet. Do, do you think there's some jealousy amongst the ranks? I don't. I, I, think, I think by and large, coaches are, are very pure. Um, you know, Brad has been, <clears throat> he's been such a great addition to our you know, NBA coaching fraternity. He's been Super humble, um, you know. I a few years ago, uh, you know, I was I served on the competition committee for for several years, and my uh, my term recently ended um, in in December. But I recommended that the league, um, if there became an opening, that he would be a great guy to have on there because of his background uh, in college and because he's a creative thinker and all that kind of stuff. And, and so he is now on the competition committee and um, is, a, is, 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 you know, an important part of that. And, um, and so, you know, I don't see that. I don't see that. It, it became a, I guess it became a narrative with this whole thing with the award. But, um, you know, to my knowledge, Brad is, is extremely, uh, extremely well-respected and, uh, you know, it's very difficult to play his teams because he uh, he prepares them well, um, and he does a lot of things that are, you know, he, he gets his guys in, in a great position to do their best, and, and, he, and he really and he really always has, even since he took the job at the beginning. So, a couple of things you said earlier, though, about Brad Stevens struck me. One, the two of you getting together <laughs> over the summer. I'm just, how does that work? I mean, do you guys just hole up inside and just? go over X's and O's and watch film for like 12 hours straight? Is that what happens? And then you sort of slipped in the fact that you flew your plane up to Indiana to meet Brad. So let's start with how you get there and then um, what you do once you're there. How long have you been flying? And uh, do you take your plane a lot of places? Is this how you get around in the summer? I mean, do you go off and and meet players, fly around and work out players? 
during the summer? Is that, is that part of your off-season schedule as well? Well, I've been flying. This will be my fifth year of doing it. Um, license, license pilot? Yeah. No, I got my <laughs> instrument rating my second year of flying. And uh, the first rating you get is your private rating, private pilot rating, which allows you to fly uh, visually, visual, uh, VFR, visual flight rules. But instrument rating is the one that you really need to get to be able to uh, fly in, you know, most situations. And so I got that my second year, and that was that was a hard that was a hard rating to get. There's a lot of things you have to do, a lot of skill you have to have. You have to do the written test is uh, <laughs> notoriously difficult. Um, and I flew up to see Brad that year uh, with my instructor because I was building hours toward my instrument rating, and we actually had to shoot a, an, an instrument approach into Goshen, Indiana. It's G-O. S-H-E-N, I forget the airport identifier number, but um, so it was a, you know, from a practical standpoint, you know, it was, it was great for my, uh, my flying stuff, because I had to take my check ride probably about two weeks after that, which is, a check ride is your, uh, is your exam to, um, to get your rating, to get your insert rating in that case, so, uh, you know, it was kind of killing two birds with one stone, and, um, and yeah, when you get together, you know, you, you sit like the, the first year, him and one of his assistants, uh, Michael Shrewsbury, came down to our place in Kiowa Island, South Carolina, and they uh, they came in. We we spent several hours, you know, in a you know in, a, in our guest house in a, in a you know kind of a, a circular table, just just talking basketball, looking at looking at some video, uh, drawing stuff up, talking about concepts, things like that. That was after his first year. And then the following year was after his second year. And um, no, it's, listen, anytime you do that, and I, I've done that stuff with with quite a few coaches. It's uh, it's always a very fertile environment for exchange of ideas, um, learning about things, learning about concepts, techniques, things like that. But you you know you've got to find you got to find people that are that are willing to share, um, which is uh, you know. Um, not always super easy, but but in his case, he was uh, he was more than willing, and uh, you know, and we've developed a, a you know good relationship and a close relationship, and, and talk frequently. What advice do you give a James Borrego who was just hired by the Hornets, or a Lloyd Pierce who was just hired by the Hawks, a first-time NBA coach? They're into the fire, uh, rebuilding programs. What do they need to do to be successful?
situation. And he finally just said, "Hey, it's got to be this amount of money in this in this number of years. Otherwise, I'm going back, and I'll just I'll just stay with Pop." And you know, he stood up to him, and and then they brought the numbers up to where they needed to be. And um, and look, you've got to have a strong uh, commitment contractually as a starting point, and then you've got to be able to get uh, really good assistance. And it, that sounds simple enough, um, but you know, hiring the best assistants is a, is a very competitive thing. Oftentimes you're asking permission to talk to other teams, talk to guys that are already employed. You know, it just, uh, it takes time. And, and it's, this is one of the real nervous parts of, of becoming a new head coach is making sure you get the right guys with you, the right mix of experience along with you got to have really good energy and, and a simple plan that, um, will take you forward and, and give you the best chance to, um, you know, to have daily improvement and get better every day. And, uh, you know, when I took over in Detroit, uh, the great Chuck Daly was, was a very, had become a very close friend of mine. And I remember sitting with him before, you know, we were getting ready to start our first year and just, just to get some ideas and things to talk about at the opening meeting. And he said, he said, hey, you know, this is going to sound um, this is going to sound a little crazy, he goes, but I think one of the things you got to talk about is losing. And, and you know, how difficult losing can be for a team that is trying to get better and establish, you know, in the opening meeting, you know, what your plan is going to be going forward and talk about that, you know, when you, when you hit some tough times and you get a two or three or maybe even a four-game losing streak, that... Hey, look, we talked about this the night before training camp started, that we were going to stay the course. If we got into this situation, that's what we're going to do, et cetera, et cetera. And it was really great advice And because a lot of guys take over jobs and, and they just talk about how we're going to win, how we're going to win. And you've got you've to talk about some of the realities of a rebuilding situation as well. So, you know, in my case, you know, we had a team that was – pretty well structured to be a good defensive team. We made a couple of really good moves um, and we took it from 32 wins um, the previous year before I got there and we, when we got it to 50 in the first year, which was great. And so, um, you know, I think those things are important, you know, contract staff, and then, you know, what the plan is going to be going forward. And of course you've got to have support and management. I want to take you back down or farther back down uh, memory lane here and go back to the 1980s and the Celtics. And I am just curious if you have any good or a very good Bird story, Larry Bird story, that you can share with us. Um, one of your favorites, perhaps. I'm sure there, I'm sure there are many. <laughs> well, gosh, goodness. Well, there are, there are a lot. Um, you know, I, I remember when I first showed up in Boston in the fall of 84, I was a third-round pick, as you guys mentioned before. And, um, you know, that, that summer I was actually looking for work in Europe because it just didn't seem very likely that a guy who was a third-round pick was going to be able to make it on a championship team. And so, uh, you know... Um, Kind of by default or whatever, I ended up, you know, showing up there for training camp the first day, and 
Um, you know, the, the, the first thing you notice about Larry is he's the first guy on the floor every day. So that was no surprise. And, and then he's <clears throat> very often the last guy to leave the floor. Um, you know, once I made the team and, you know, I was going to be on the, the roster, et cetera, et cetera. These guys played a trick on me one time, and Bird was was a guy that was very much behind this. Now, I, my seat in the locker room was between Dennis Johnson was on my right and Kevin McHale was on my left. And so uh, one day I went into the uh, locker room at the Garden before a game, and I saw a bag that was like a duffel bag stuffed with stuff, and I didn't, I didn't look at it initially. So I came in, I sat down, and the majority of the players <clears throat> had already been in there, and said, all of a sudden, Larry brings uh, the old equipment manager who was there for many, many decades, Walter Randall, out around the corner, <laughs> and he comes over and he goes, Larry goes, see, we told you, see, look, see right there. <laughs> and what they had done is they'd taken a bunch of gear, and they stuffed it in a bag, and they kind of set me up that I had stolen a bunch of gear, and then they had water Randall come out, and he goes, you, you, you did it. <laughs> and they all had a real big laugh about it. Uh-huh. You know, that kind of prank, prankster stuff was going on all the time uh, back, back in those days. And it was, I mean, it was a glorious time to be a part of the Celtics because... Um, the team was at its peak, you know, coming off the championship in 84. Bird was the best player on the planet for the next two or three years. The rivalry with the Lakers was, you know, second to none. Um, and, uh, and they were great people, you know. And, hey, McHale was one of the first guys that took me under his wing. Ainge was great to me early on. It took a while to get to, look, to know Larry because he's a private person and, uh, you know, the irony is that in the long run, you know, he and I had the most probably meaningful relationship because we ended up coaching together for three years, and then I worked for him when he was the president for four years. Um, with the Indiana Pacers. Yeah, with the Indiana Pacers. And uh, I'll tell you one other story that's, that's a great Larry story. And this was, you know, this was when Conseco Fieldhouse first opened. It was the night that it opened. Now now it's called Bankers Life Field House. So it it opened, I believe, in the fall of nineteen ninety nine. And so <clears throat> they had a halftime ceremony. So Larry was coaching the team at the time. So he had to skip out to do this halftime ceremony and they had the greatest players in the history of Indiana basketball, you know, out there. And um Larry was out there, John Wooden was out there, Oscar Robertson was out there, and there's this guy named Bobby Plump, who was the real-life guy in the movie Hoosiers who hit the game-winning shot. Now, you know, Bobby Plump, um, I don't, after hitting the shot in real life in that high school game in the Indiana Championship in whatever year it was, uh, went on to become I believe a very, a very, very successful insurance salesman in the state of Indiana. And so anyway, they are introducing like the top ten players in the history of Indiana basketball. So you know they got Bobby 
Ryan, they got Oscar, they got Larry, and then they got John Wood. And so Larry told me this story. This is, this is kind of a typical, you know, kind of Larry's brand of humor. And so as this whole thing is going on, I said, you know, we were talking about it. I said, I said, Larry, you're standing up there next to Oscar Robertson and Bobby Plump. I said, what was that like? He goes, he goes, hey, he goes, I guess you, Bobby. He goes, you get one shot and you're standing up here with me. They <laughs> 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 really had a way of, of being pretty direct, of putting things in perspective, but also keeping a sense of humor about it. And, hey, the one thing about those teams that I was fortunate enough to be involved with you know, and, and during that period of time was, I mean, that was a fun-loving group of kick-ass competitors. I mean, they, they were some of the greatest competitors in history. And then, you know, of course, Red was still around in those days. And so it was, you know, if, for someone like me that, that grew up loving the NBA but didn't not having great access to it, I mean, we didn't even have cable TV where I grew up. We had We had three channels you could get, and you had a, you had a rotor um, where you could turn it one of three directions and it would move your antenna and you could point toward the one U.S. station, which was a CBS affiliate. That back in those days, did not have basketball, NBA basketball. Or you could go to two, you could go to two Canadian stations um, that both had Hockey Night in Canada. So I was a big Montreal Canadiens fan uh, back in those days. But, uh, hey, those years in Boston were, uh, you know, some of, the, some of the real golden years of the NBA because that was really the, the genesis of the revival of the NBA with, with the revival with the, uh, the Celtics and the Lakers and Larry against Magic and, and all that stuff. And it was just, uh, it was just, it was great to be, a, uh, to be a part of that. Now, certainly a lot of memories for those of us who grew up in the area. Rick, the Dallas Mavericks, another year uh, in the books now, and you're in the draft lottery coming up as we sit here on the Monday before the draft lottery. It's tomorrow night. Uh, you guys, by Vegas odds, have a 40% chance to finish in the top three and a 13% chance. Not bad at all. You're telling me there's a chance. <laughs> a 13% chance to finish with the number one pick. I know the lottery's a crapshoot, but what do you have to do to get the Mavericks back in the playoffs next year? Well, we got to hit it on this on this pick, um, and yeah, I mean, the, you know, the, the the world has become such an analytic world of you know numbers and percentages and all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, I, I've got a good feeling about tomorrow night. That's that's all I I can tell you. Um, Why? What, what gives you such a good feeling? I just do. Kind of like before I came, before I came on this podcast, I just had a really good feeling about it for whatever reason. <laughs> and there's absolutely there's absolutely no reason for that, right? Sure. I mean, exactly. You know, is, yeah. That's I mean, for sure. So, uh, look, we're we're guaranteed of finishing no lower than six, and you know I see six high impact players in this draft. Now it's just you know we've got to we've got to calculate this pick. You know, based on the guys that we have, uh, based on some of our needs that you can you could, you can measure with analytics, based on some of the personalities and, and, and those kinds of things, which are more day to day sort of feel gut instinct type things, and, and knowing knowing the people. Um, 
And so, you know, that's a that's a big that's a big pick. And we have the thirty fourth pick as well, and that's only you know, that's four picks below the uh, the end of the first round and you know, we feel the draft's pretty pretty deep and if we hit it right, you know, we might possibly be able to come up with a second rotation player, but presumably our first pick is going to have to most likely be projected as a starter, um, which is, I, I think, the way we need to go. And, and you know, we're going to have to uh, have to get better from within. I mean, Dennis Smith Jr. had a great last 10 games of the season. He's going to have to take that momentum into next year. He's going to have to be a leader. He's going to have to uh, uh, even more responsibility on his shoulders. Um, Harrison Barnes has established that he can be a high-impact player statistically. Um, and he's going to have to take that to another level, and he's going to have to be a leader. And uh, and then, of course, Nowitzki is going to be back for another year, and, and we've got we've to figure out his part in this whole thing as well. And, and if you've got a guy like that um, around for one or two more years or whatever it's going to be, um, you know, that's going to be a plus for us as well. And so, look, a lot of it's going to be on me, the decisions I make, and, and how we get these guys ready. Um, our training camp is going to begin with uh, a trip to China. We're going to go over there and play Philadelphia in two games. So, so that's a tough way to know, start. Well, you know, sure, that's you being negative again. Thanks. I view it that, look, this is a great opportunity to, for the team to bond All right. um, in a country where there's very few other people speaking English, you know, and so we're going to have to, we're going to have to take the positive view. We're not going to take the Springer view on it. And, uh, <laughs> not going to take the jet lag view, right? Okay. We're going to have to, yeah, we're going to have to really um, do things right and, and hit things the right way. It's just, it's become a league that is, you know, so close from top to bottom. Um, and the margins between winning and losing are, are extremely slim. And so, um, and look, that's the way you want it. You want parity. Uh, parity creates more interest, and with more interest, you get a more popular sport. Um, TV ratings are better, and the game is better. And you know, our game is done exceptionally well. Uh, it's more exciting than it's ever been, and it's more competitive than it's ever been, and, and that's awesome. Rick, it's been a pleasure. You know, I get to deal with this nat- nattering nabog of negativity in Shira Springer, so we'll try to rein her in. But yes, please. Yes. It, I'll, I'll, and I'll, tr- I'll try to be more optimistic. Yeah. All right, well, it's been my pleasure. Hey, thank Thanks. you, Rick. Thanks for joining good us. Good luck in the draft and good luck in the offseason. And good luck with that okay. trip to China. All right. Thanks. Take care. Thanks, Thanks. a lot. Bye. Make sure to check for the latest episode on pod617.com. Listen up, Boston, and listen to The Meter is Running on the Boston Podcast Network.